Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis, we're going to go back to Genesis after a one-week hiatus for Reformation Sunday that we took last week. And two weeks ago when we were in Genesis, we saw God institute the sign of the covenant, the first giving of a sacrament to believing worshipers of God. And so we looked at the nature of sacraments to the church and we considered the sign and the thing signified. That is, there is an outward ceremony that we do, but there is an inward grace that only God can do. And there is nothing that we can do that can make him do that or that can cause him to owe that inward reality that he gives only as he decides. And this is the sign and the thing signified. We also looked at the Reformed concept of the sacramental union and the way in which we can talk about a sacrament, and Scripture does, as if it is what it signifies to true believers in God who receive his benefits only by faith. We always need to remember that. We only receive the benefits of God by faith, not by the sacraments, but because the sign is joined to the thing signified for those who believe in Christ, we can speak of the sacrament as if it was the reality, as if it did the reality, because that's the sacramental union. When you believe in Christ, that picture is real to you. And so you can speak of it that way. And we also looked at sacraments as signs and seals of the righteousness of faith because that's what Romans 4.11, which we read in our scripture reading today, that's what it calls circumcision, a sign and a seal of the righteousness of the faith, and this is crucial, that Abraham already had while he was uncircumcised. You hear that? Sacraments, circumcision added nothing to his righteousness, added nothing to the salvation that he already had, that he fully possessed by faith in the word of the gospel. And that's how we are saved. We believe the word. We are thankful that God gives signs and seals along with the word, God's illustration, God's guarantee that yes, if you believe the word, if you believe in Jesus, you most certainly will be saved. That's the purpose of sacraments, to strengthen faith. They are not dynamic rites. They are not performative acts. They do not unite a person to Christ. They do not of themselves give saving grace. Nor are they any of the other things that the modern heretical movement, Federal Vision, says for them, and it's not modern at all, it's the ancient heresy, Apart from the word of the gospel, they are nothing. Read Luther, read Calvin. Over and over again they say that. Without the word, if you don't believe the word, you get nothing. You get an empty shell. But if you believe the word, that sign and that seal is important to you. And it communicates to you assurance and strengthening of your faith because God has assured you again that he has forgiven you by those things. Finally, we examined the principle in the sacraments, and we have to know this, of continuity and discontinuity. And we saw how certain ceremonial things, temporal things, typical things fall away or are changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so circumcision, which was a bloody cutting sign, Given on the eighth day, that's significant. you know why? Because the eighth day was the first day of blood sacrifice. An animal could not be killed its first seven days. It had to be with its mother. But on the eighth day, 
It could be offered. And so God gives man, and on the eighth day, a blood cutting. Reminding Abraham, reminding Abraham's seed, both men and women, that everything that came from him, even the promise of salvation, so much as it came from Abraham, it needed purified. It needed sacrifice. There needed to be a blood offering. Even in the giving of the seed, the emitting of the seed. Circumcision signified that. That's why only males got it and on the eighth day. But now that it's been fulfilled, now that the true sacrifice has come, Jesus was cut off for his people. Now that that has happened, there's no more cutting sign. There's no more blood. Jesus satisfied all that. He achieved and accomplished pure righteousness. So we get a washing sign on both men and women. Because we're all included and it's no longer just that male seed that's being typified. So only the males get it. So much difference between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. And we saw likewise that the Passover meal of the Old Testament, though we're not looking at that here, but that's the other sacrament that we need to consider. That anticipated and symbolized the salvation to the whole physical nation coming out of typical bondage in Egypt. But that's secured by the, that was secured by the typical lamb, the lamb, tons of lambs, millions of lambs that they had to sacrifice every year and they ate of that lamb. That's radically changed in the New Testament, right? Because now the true lamb has come and he has purchased everlasting salvation to believers, the spiritual church. And so Jesus doesn't have a meal with a family in their home in readiness to exit Egypt with their staff in their hand and eating the bitter herbs and all that stuff. He completely changes all those things. Jesus celebrates a communion after a meal in an upper room, not with a family, not with children, but with adults, with his disciples, his spiritual family who are self-examining and able to discern because they're adults, they're mature. And he gives them one bite of bread and one sip of a cup as a sign and seal of the union which they have with him only by faith. And they can feed on him only by faith. This is a picture of that, an assurance of that if they believe. And we also celebrate and anticipate that communion to come. The one that we have now with one another, but that feast to come, right? That feast of the lamb that we're looking forward to and that we have. And so we see how these things are, are given by God to us. Not to compete with, not to add to the word, but to assure us again that it's true for you who believe. Well, in today's text, we get to see Abram apply, Abraham apply the sacrament of circumcision to himself and to his house. But first God reveals to him, and this is crucial in the text, that the promised seed of salvation will only be by a supernatural birth. Why is that important? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these rights that you gave your people, the church, Lord God. We are one with them. We are one body. Those who are looking forward to the coming Savior, we who look back on what the Savior has completed, we're all saved by the righteousness of faith. We believe in you, and so you cleanse us of our sins. So help us this morning to grow in that faith, to grow in love for you, and and to rightly understand these things, that we could put them into practice, and that we could be pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15. This is God's holy word. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son and all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old. When he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, the choice of Sarah. I want you to notice the choice of of Sarah. Reminds me of the choice of Sarah that we made. See, I can talk about her. She's not here. Our daughter. When Robin and I were trying to think of a name for Sarah and we weren't agreeing, I wanted Rachel. I always liked that name. Robin grew up with a girl named Rachel who was rotten to her, so we couldn't name her Rachel. Doesn't <laughs> that always happen, right? Um, Robin wanted Hannah. And I just thought, Hannah Heipel. That's just, I could see somebody getting ridiculed for that. And I just thought, that just sounds weird. I don't want Hannah. She didn't want Rachel. And, you know, we, had, we hadn't decided. I think you were almost in the hospital. I mean, it was getting close to her being born. We hadn't decided the name yet. And one day, our oldest son, Calvin, walks up and he says to Robin and I as we're sitting there, I know what the baby's name is. We looked at him and he said, Sarah. I don't know why he did that. I don't know where that came from. Robin and I looked at each other. And we smiled and said, yeah, that is the baby's name. That's how we chose Sarah is the name of our only daughter. Well, God chooses Sarah in this text. This is the first time we get to see Sarah as part of the saving plan of God. Up until now, it's been Abraham. Now, God knew all along he was going to choose Sarah. But God decides to reveal his plan as he does. And just as Abraham's name in the beginning of this chapter was changed from Abram to Abraham because God said, I've made you the father of nations and kings will come from you. The exact same rationale here. Do you see that? 
Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, my princess, uh, I-E on the end is first person singular. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and give you a son by her, and I will bless her. She shall be the mother of nations, kings of, same thing, mother of nations, kings of peoples, father of nations, kings of peoples. God is now showing Abraham that it's through Sarah that salvation will come, the seed of salvation. We need to think of that in three ways. Christ, the ultimate seed. They understood that. Their, their descendants, their seed, their people, they understood that. But there's a third sense which gets very clear in our text, and that is the spiritual seed. Those who have the faith of Abraham. These are really and truly his children, even more so than those who are his blood. And we see that come out in this text. Why? Well, first of all, when God says it's Sarah, that means it's not Ishmael. Ishmael's 13 years old. Text says he was circumcised on the 13th year of his life. Do you know that many Arabs still circumcise their boys when they're 13 because of the circumcision of Ishmael? Many in the Islamic faith practice circumcision when a boy's 13 because they look as Ishmael as their progenitor. But if the son is, is coming through Abraham, and they, I, I, I'm convinced they would have thought it was Ishmael up until this point, and now it's through Sarah. That means the seed cannot be from Ishmael. Ishmael is not the seed. That also means that those future children that Abraham's going to have when he marries Keturah after Sarah dies, quite a few children, if you read later in Genesis, none of those are the seed because it's through Abraham and it's through Sarah. But think of that. If it's through Abraham and through Sarah, and we know later it's through Jacob and not Esau. So it's through Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. But, and, and we get many nations, many nations to Abraham, many nations to Sarah. And the word is goyim. So you can't turn that into clans, peoples, somehow rel relatives, you know, broader family. That has to be outside of your bloodline. These can't be literal descendants. They have to be figurative in some sense. But Abraham give, and Sarah have Isaac. And Isaac, again, it gives uh, God's promises through Jacob. Jacob only has 12 sons, and they're the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see what I'm saying? That for Abraham and Sarai, Sarah now, to have and to be the mother and father of many nations, it can't be by blood. Because all of their promised children by blood are through Jacob, and that's all of Israel. This text demands a spiritual seed of Abraham, a spiritual seed descendants, a family by faith. What we read in our text, what Rick read, Pastor Appleton read in Romans chapter four, and we see it echoed in many places. Galatians 3, 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Whether or not they're circumcised, our text said, Romans 4 said, Abram is the father of those who believe while not circumcised and the father of those who are circumcised and believe. But you see what's crucial is faith. The real fatherhood of Abraham that matters is faith. Ishmael is a child of Abraham. Esau is a child of both Abraham and Sarah, both Isaac and Rebekah. Neither one of them are the children of God. Beloved, this text is talking about you 
and me. God is choosing us when he chooses Sarah, when he makes Sarah and Abraham the mother and father of the faithful. John Calvin says we rightly honor Sarah with that title. He says this, quote, God changes the name of Sarai in order that he may extend her preeminence far and wide. Even as Abraham is the father of the faithful, so Sarah is the mother of the faithful, or the father and mother of the church. We could say it that way, in their faith that they believed in God. And of course, this goes back to Genesis 12, 3, when God says, in you, all the families of the, of the earth will be blessed. And we know ultimately that's Christ. But now we're seeing that these are these, not just Jews, but Gentiles, foreign peoples, nations beyond the blood nation of Israel. They will be children. Listen to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. They are not all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Paul is commenting on our text under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's always great. You don't have to figure it out. The New Testament will tell you what it means. That is, here's Paul explaining, what does it mean? That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That's the New Testament. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's what Paul says, our text means. It means that we are the children of Abraham, that we are the children of Sarah. So it's not enough to be the physical descendant of Abraham and Sarah. You have to be a child of faith to truly be a child of God. This is God's choice of Sarah, or really the choice of Sarah. Secondly, I want you to notice the choice of Ishmael. The choice of Ishmael. How does Abraham respond to this news? That Sarah is going to be the mother of the seed of salvation. Even as he is the father, they've known that he was going to be the father for some time. This is the first time they find out about Sarah and we see Abraham's reaction in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart. Now, how do you understand that text? It seems to me, and there are, there's a minority of commentators who believe that Abraham is laughing in unbelief, and Abraham is laughing because this is ridiculous, this can't happen. You know, God, you've got to be pulling my leg. Um, I don't think that's why Abraham's laughing. And I think there's some very good reasons for that. Our text said Abraham did not waver. That was the text that Rick read from Romans 4. He did not waver in unbelief, but he believed even though his body was as good as dead. So it's talking about this time. It's talking about when God gave this promise, Abraham didn't disbelieve. Abraham's had plenty of sins. We've seen them. I'm not washing Abraham, whitewashing his sins. You know, well, he's Abraham, so everything he does, I've got to excuse. But I do think he doesn't laugh because of unbelief. It doesn't make sense to me. The New Testament indicates at this time he did not waver in unbelief, but he believed in God, even though his body was as good as dead, 100 years old. That's this time, clearly. But notice what he does. Verse 17 again. Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said in his heart. Doesn't that say something to you? He repeats what God just said. Shall it be that a child will be born to a man who is 100? Shall Sarah, who is 90, have children? I think... I think Abraham is something we would say, he's just tickled with the idea. You know, it's just, it just strikes him. It's just, I can't believe God's going to do it this way. Not that I can't believe literally, but I'm, I'm astonished 
that this is the way at last. God has chosen to have a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old woman. That's how salvation's going to come. They're going to have a baby. That's just crazy. God thought this up. And it just strikes him that way. And the majority of commentators all take that view. Let me just give you some of them because I, I love the way they write it. The original Geneva Bible, 1599, it says of Abraham's laughter, quote, which proceeded from a sudden joy and not from a lack of faith. 19th century Calendelich, the promise was so immensely great and so immensely paradoxical that Abraham could not help but laugh. Jameson Fawcett Brown earlier in the 20th century, it was not the sneer of unbelief, but a smile of delight at the improbability of the event. Matthew Henry, it was a laughter of delight, not of distrust, not of doubt, but of wonder and surprise. And I think John Calvin explains it well, he, the, the psychology of it. He says of Abraham, quote, not that he either ridiculed the promise of God or treated it as a fable, listen, or rejected it altogether, but as often happens when things occur which are least expected, partly lift up with joy, partly carried out of himself with wonder, he breaks into a laughter, Calvin says, as the novelty of the thing strikes him. Those are all Calvin's words. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And to me, the proof is verse 18. Because Abraham hears this promise, he's astonished. He's shocked, but then it hits him. The reality of what God is saying and the consequences hit him. And I think the, 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 the laughter of verse 17 turns into tears in verse 18. This is a heart cry of a father who's thinking of his son. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What's he saying there? That he might live? He's already alive. Can't be praying for him to be alive. That he might live before you. That he gets to be my heir. He's already his heir. Now that's not going to change. And What about the headship of the covenant or something like that? I don't think that's the way. It's not what he says. That he might live before you. Coram Deo. Before God. The way believers live. We live and walk in the presence of God because he's our God. Abraham is praying for the salvation of his son. Because he knows he's going to be cast off. And he doesn't want that. He's crying out for God to, to save his son. You don't need to choose another, Lord God. I have a seed. It's Ishmael. Abraham is believing in the promise. He wouldn't pray this if he didn't believe. If he didn't think God was really going to do it, he wouldn't think of praying for Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live. I know you're not going to do this. He knows he is going to do it. That's why he's worried about Ishmael. God's going to make me and Sarah have a baby. Why? That's so crazy. Oh, my goodness. What about my son? What's going to happen to him? My son, who's 13, whom I love. I see the laughter giving way to tears. I see Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. I see David crying out, oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Would that I had died instead of you. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son. Abram doesn't want another child. He has enough. This is good enough. I have a son, Lord. Use it. Use what I have done. Sarah and I did this. We did it. We thought it was the right thing. I know we corrupted our marriage and, you know, that was wrong. But they put Hagar away. Hagar never sleeps with Abraham again. They did seem to learn that lesson. She's never called his wife either. 
And Ishmael's always called her son. Even the adoption they seem to not go through with. Abram's praying, it seems to me, for his son. Because he's concerned for him. He's choosing Ishmael. It's what they did in the flesh and it's good enough. It can work. It's, it, it fills your words according to the letter, Lord God. He's my seed. Sarah doesn't need to be involved. She's already good with this. So thirdly, I want you to notice our choices and the sovereignty of God. Our choices and the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we really see things and we like the way it is and God has blessed us and we don't want it to change. It's good enough. I'm being faithful. I'm following you. I don't like what this means for my family or for my situation, right? I mean, Robin and I wrestled with this when I was going to seminary because I loved it, because I wanted to learn about God, not because I wanted to be a pastor. That was ridiculous. I never thought that. Robin didn't think that. And as people were beginning to think that, we both, you know, sort of blew that off. Well, that's what people say. You know, they want to encourage you. Oh, you're, you know, maybe you have a call. Ha ha. I work in television full time. You know, I'm doing this because I want to grow. I want to learn. I can take classes at seminary. But as uh, that went on and on and it became more and more real, it wasn't something that we rejoiced in. It was something that we really stressed over, something that we didn't want. And we had to come to terms with it. And I think that's what, you know, in a very small way, what Abraham is going through. Because he wants God to save his son. And God says in verse 19, no. I know a lot of parents who cry out to God for Christian children who've grown up and who have left the faith, right? Who have stopped going to church, who have maybe even say they don't believe in God anymore. And there's nothing more heartbreaking for a parent to go through that. And those of you who only have really young children, you don't understand that. You don't recognize, you know, sometimes it's so hard because you're caught up with just the chaos of every moment. You know, we had four kids in five years. We, we understood a little bit of that. And it is, you're, it's all consuming, right? If I got an hour to read a book, it was like a miracle. You never get an hour when you have four kids under five. But as they grow and as they make choices and as they do things and you have to let them go, right? God loans you those kids for 18 to 21 years and then they move on. And you hope and pray that they continue to make the Lord their God. You can't see their hearts and you don't know what God's going to do and that's a different kind of hard. It's a less preferred one. It's better when you can just grab them and stick them in the crib. You know, give them a spanking. It's done. There we go. We're good. I'm going to stop the car if you don't shut up. (laughs) Control. You have it. You have to let it go. And you don't know what that means. And against what some say there are no guarantees. There simply aren't. God has not promised any Christian family absolute salvation of their children. The New International Commentary on the Old Testament says, quote, not even a patriarch has a monopoly on divine grace, commenting on this text. Not even Abraham can cause God to save his son. Are you a better parent than Abraham? I don't think so. I don't think I am. We pray for our kids. We love our kids. We raise them in the fear, the nurture, the admonition, the love and discipline of the Lord. We bring them to Sunday school. We bring them to worship. We teach them God's word. We do the catechism with them. Right? And and they benefit from that. I want to show you that. But you can't make them, you can't give them a new heart. You can't change their heart. You can't do it. 
None of those things are good enough. Everything that you do towards your kid, you've got to understand this is a sin. Everything that I do, my best prayers for my kids, a little bit of pride, a little bit of vanity, a little bit of laziness, sin. If God took that and said, this is what your kid deserves, all of my best efforts, you can't trust in that. You can't look that you have done certain acts of obedience that God now has to give you salvation. If God did anything based on what you've done, forget about it. Salvation is grace. Yes, we are the means, but those means are by grace, not by you did your part. That's works. Abraham is told, no, thank God you're not Abraham. Because we're not told that. God never tells us, I don't believe unless you're a prophet and God is speaking to you immediately and divinely. And I'm going to argue that you're probably mistaken on that. But, but that means God hasn't spoken to you in the moment, no. Which is a comfort, isn't it? You can still pray. You don't know. God might save your kids. I would encourage you to pray to the end of your, end of the, your days. And I, my big uh, example is Monica, the, the mother of Augustine, praying for years, for decades, for her wayward son, a philanderer. And God saved him because she didn't stop praying. So you don't know what God's going to do. For Abram, it was decided. Verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. I'm not going to save Ishmael. But even in this text, even with God saying no, Abram's prayers made a difference. That's the thing. I mean, we never get the no. And when we do know, we'll be in heaven, we'll have the mind of Christ, and we'll rejoice in whatever we see. So you never have to go through this. You never have to have this kind of a test from God. God is asking Abram to put God in front of his son Ishmael. It's not going to be the last time God says that to Abraham, to put me before a child. And it's going to be a different son next time. Abram has to make God first. We have to make God first. You can't idolize anyone, anything. God has to come first. Is God enough? That's what God is challenging Abraham here. That I come before your son. But God hears his prayers, even for one who is reprobate, even for one who we know is not saved because of what Scripture says about Ishmael. Even then, God hears Abraham's prayers. And he blesses this child. Look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes. I will make him a great nation. No, it wasn't what Abraham most wanted. But it's really not so amazing, is it, that God doesn't save every child of a believer. It's amazing that he saves so many. That it's kind of the norm when you are faithful that your kids get. That's the amazing thing because that's not owed. There's no deal there. That's not by works. But God continues to bless Abraham. And, and here's what I want to say to you parents who do struggle with kids who have grown up and have walked away. Number one, you don't know. You don't know that they might already be Christian, but they're in a serious backsliding. Christians, uh, there are many examples, backslid for years, walked away from God. Think of uh, Peter denying Christ three times, David having adultery, murder. The child is born. It's a year later. He's still in denial. People backslide, they deny, they say things that aren't true about their hearts. 
you know. Peter denied Jesus even though he knew Jesus. I don't know the man. That wasn't the true state of his heart. Maybe your child is doing that. I don't know. But I don't know if they're believers or not. And I don't, and you don't know, and you don't know if they'll come to Christ. But we do know this, that God hears our prayers. And so pray for them. If they will become, come back to Christ, it will be through their prayers. And God heard Abraham's prayer and God blessed Ishmael. Even though he was reprobate, God still blessed him. I wonder how many Christian parents have delivered their wayward children from sorrow and pain and trouble and even greater sins that they would have gotten into, but the parents prayed and God answered the prayers of the parents. Isn't that what God does for, for Abraham? Because he's your seed. I've heard you. I'm going to give him these outwardly good things. Many temporal good things. Because you prayed for him. You don't know how many things your prayers have delivered your children from. Who've walked away from the Lord. But God's protection is on them. Because you pray. You know him. Matthew Henry says, quote, great plenty of outward good things is often given to those children of godly parents who are born after the flesh merely after the flesh, for their parents' sake, Matthew Henry says. Don't think God doesn't hear your prayers because your child isn't converted. He is hearing your prayers. He is blessing them. He is protecting them. Again, Matthew Henry, God takes whom he pleases into covenant with himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And then he cites Romans 9, 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, whom he wills he hardens. We can't control that. We can ask him, and God does use our prayers, and he does save even through them. Abraham knew. He prayed, and God blessed. We don't know. We have even more reason to pray, and we can trust that God will answer our prayers. All right? On the other side of it, don't miss this. Calvin notices this. Nothing temporal is promised to the seed of salvation. Nothing. God doesn't promise Isaac an easy life, a good life, you know, a nice family life, a beautiful wife and perfect kids and wonderful car and job and nothing. Isaac gets the covenant. Isaac gets the everlasting covenant. Isaac gets me as his God and eternal life and nothing in this world is promised to him beyond that. Not the salvation of his kids or anything else. He is promised, I will be your God. And you'll get the covenant. Calvin comments, neither wealth nor power nor any other temporal gift is promised to the sons of the Spirit, but an eternal blessing which is possessed in this world only by hope. Only by hope. Because God's worth it. He's enough. And that's all he promises. In fact, I would say to you that it's more often times when, when, you, when you become a believer that you experience hardship, that you experience trials and suffering and persecution and pain and discrimination. That's when it gets hard. Life's easy when you're going with the flow, you know, just going with the mainstream and doing what everybody else says. But when you go against that and you make that known, it gets a little bit hard really fast. Usually it's suffering that believers get in this world. And so God does pour out this blessing, but he answers Abram's prayer and Abram has to submit to that. This is our choices in the sovereignty of God. We can want certain things we can ask for God, but in the end, we have to Submit to God. And so fourthly, notice the blessings of God's choice. The blessings of God's choice. Notice how Abraham responds to this. Immediately he obeys. 
that same day, that, that same day he was given circumcision. We didn't read that. That was the first part of the text we covered a few weeks ago. But notice 23. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were brought with money, every man among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As I said to you, a lot of circumcisions that day. He had 318 men armed for war. There would have been older men. There would have been younger men and boys. And they would have all gotten it on that day. Maybe a thousand men. And they all obey. Calvin calls it a particular blessing to Abraham's faith. That, here's, here's what he says. That so many men in his house would, quote, without tumult, meekly receive a wound. That's what it was. A wound which was both troublesome and the occasion of shame to the carnal senses. That's what Calvin says. That all these grown men would accept this and not rebel against Abraham. What a blessing to his faith. But you know what? If you just submitted to the sign and you didn't believe in the God of Abraham, that didn't do you any good. We saw that in our scripture reading, right? Does circumcision or uncircumcision didn't matter. Do you believe? That same thing's true for baptism. Baptism or unbaptism doesn't matter. Do you believe? Nobody who is baptized but doesn't believe will be saved. And everybody who believes but isn't baptized will be saved. Baptism is important. It's commanded. We do it. Circumcision was important. Abraham doesn't. And it was a little bit more of an ordeal. A little bit more investment, right? But he obeys immediately. Though he's told his son is not going to be the one, he still obeys God. God is still his God. He puts the sign. And the crazy thing is he puts the sign on Ishmael. Now, wait a minute. God said to Abraham, Ishmael will not get the reality. That's what the statement means. He's not going to get the reality of the covenant, which is salvation. But Abram still puts the sign of it on him. Why is that? How can you justify that? Because the sign and the seal is not a sign and a seal of Ishmael's potential future faith. Romans 4.11, what Pastor Appleton read. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And Abraham was commanded by God to put the sign and seal of his faith on his whole house. That's the way it worked. Had nothing to do with Ishmael's belief or unbelief. He was part of Abraham's house. And so he gets benefits. Paul talks about this in Romans. What is it? What's the benefit of circumcision? Romans chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? He just got done saying he is not a Jew, is one outwardly, and circumcision is not really of the uh, outward, but it's in the heart by the Spirit. So true circumcision is what matters. So why, why do the outward? Here's what Paul says, much in every way. Much, what? Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The most, the greatest blessing that you have in being in the church is you have the word of God. You have the word of God proclaimed. You have the word of God prayed. You have the word of God taught. You have the word of God memorized. You have the word of God lived out. And don't think you don't benefit from that. When the word of God is lived out, there's justice in a society. When the word of God is lived out, there is mercy to, to sinners. When the word of God is lived out, there is truth and there is freedom. And the weak are protected and lifted up. And the strong serve rather than oppress. That's what happens when you're in a community where the word of God is given. 
Ishmael was blessed tremendously to be brought up in this. And so is anyone who is brought up in the church, whether or not they believe. Even the children who walk away from the faith, their lives are so much better because they have so many principles that they've adopted, that they've learned, and they don't fall for so many things that their sinful friends who are also unbelievers fall for, but they didn't have the advantage of being brought up where the oracles of God were alive, were loved, were taught, were lived out. It's a blessing to have the outward, but it's the inward, Lord. It's the inward reality that we want. Abraham is in covenant with God. His whole house, therefore, gets the sign, but they have to believe in order to be saved. Sacraments, beloved, are helpful gifts from God. We need them. They help us to grow in our faith. As we trust in Christ, they are useful to us. But the supernatural origin of Isaac, the fact that he comes not from Abram and Sarai's scheme, but he comes from a supernatural birth from a mother who literally could not have children any longer. It shows us that all that we do to try to make salvation happen for ourselves or for someone else can't do it. We have to wait on the Lord. We have to trust in God's sovereign grace. It was grace that brought Isaac into the world and the greater Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes down from heaven and is implanted completely supernaturally in the womb of his mother. Salvation is by grace alone. That's really the message of this text. And that we don't trust in signs. We trust in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for Abraham and Sarah's faith, Lord God, that you gave to them. And that you kept a people for yourself because you had determined to bring the Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we see how you fulfilled these things. How you fulfilled that bloody sign of circumcision. That you were cut off for us. So now we just get a washing. A symbolic picture of what the Holy Spirit really does in the sinful hearts of believers. He washes them clean if they believe in you. And so help us, Lord God to be pointed back to your gospel, to be quickened in our faith by all these things. We're, helpful for the out, we're thankful for the outward. But do the inward, Lord God. Hear our prayers. Save us, save our children. Cause us to be faithful and to grow in grace. And let us give you all of the praise and the honor and the glory. For it is yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.